Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill and I am the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. So on today's episode, I am focusing on two intersecting identities, being on the trans spectrum, inclusive of being non-binary and being BIPOC. So this uh, was another show that really required a lot of recruitment and patience um, and the help of a lot of folks out there in the field. So thank you. You know who you are um, and trying to find individuals within the profession who identify as both of these identities. Um, I am delighted today to welcome my two guests, Dr. Erica Lynn Hendel. Yes. Okay. Ah. And Marina Huen Chunier? I probably. Yeah, Wen Chunier. I actually I go by Ari right now. Ari. (laughs) Thank you. Ari. All right. Cool. Thank you so much. And I beg forgiveness on the name. Say that for me one more time because I think it's really important for me to model. Um, Ari. Right. Ari and the last name. Uh, Wen Chunier. Winchineer. Awesome. <laughs> it's chilly. I, I tell people all the time, like, they're like, oh, names are so hard. And I'm like, if you can sit through four years of uh, the DVM program learning, right? Multi syllabic yeah. words, medical words, you can figure out how to learn how to say someone's name. It is, it's, it's a doable thing. Mm-hmm. So back to our intro, I do want to say, as we kind of kind of get into this, um, that this is a really special conversation. Um, and uh, this is will be a very unique conversation for the show. Um, I'm considering this really to be some sacred space here. These are two wonderful human beings who have really kind of stepped up <laughs> into the gap here to really uh, amplify voice and visibility to a population that is just largely invisible in the profession. And, and so um, I don't want to see any shenanigans in my chat. <laughs> <laughs> Let me say that now. Um, but, you know, space and grace and a lot of support for um, my guests, Ari and Erica. So people who identify as transgender tend to be, according to the Williams Institute, more a bit more racially and ethnically diverse as a population. Um, as according to the Williams Institute, there are an estimated about 1.5 million people in the U.S. who identify as transgender, and another 1.2 million people who identify as non-binary specifically. With respect to the latter community, 76% uh, of those identifying as non-binary are between 18 and 29. Most live in urban areas, two-thirds struggle to make ends meet, and 94% 
this is heartbreaking, 94% have considered suicide at some point in their lives. Um, So I really wanted to do this show because these voices are um, largely invisible within the profession that the community is just so very, very small. And that's globally. (laughs) I was recruiting all over the place. Um, And much like the general public, um, these students comprised in total about less than 1% of DVM students um, in the U.S. and abroad. It's it's unclear how many specifically are identifying as trans-identifying versus non-binary identifying, but again, combined, still less than 1% um, um, who are currently studying veterinary medicine. Adding the layer of racial and ethnic identity serves to really focus on the experiences of individuals who are really having a unique lived experience, sadly dealing with multiple types of oppression and marginalization in life very broadly. But today we're going to talk also about um, life broadly, but also specific to veterinary medicine. So with that... I want to welcome my guests and give them each an opportunity to uh, share a little bit about themselves. Ari, we're going to start with you. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Hi, my name's Ari. I'm currently a third year at Cummings Tufts Veterinary School of Medicine. Um, I guess my, I'll talk a little bit about my interests. Um, I mainly went into the vet men field because I was very interested in shelter medicine um, coming from Dominican Republic. That's kind of an environment that I have always wanted to like work in. Um, But recently, like throughout school, I've also gained experience and interest in emergency and critical care, as well as veterinary forensics medicine. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. We're looking forward to hearing more. Erica, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Dr. Erica Lynn Hundle. I currently am a small animal relief veterinarian in Arizona. I have lived, uh, I have worn several hats in my life. Uh, I started out with an interest in um, wildlife and shifted up during vet school to food animal medicine. Uh, I went to UPenn, was a combined degree student there, so I spent a lot of time both in the shelter world and also in biomedical sciences. So it's kind of like a have seen a lot of different places in veterinary medicine, and um, I just, I love relief work so much because I get to uh, interact with a bunch of different clinics, and so I think that's something that I found a home for myself, uh, and I really enjoy it a lot. Um, yeah. Hey, awesome. All right. So let's get into it, shall we? So it's taken, uh, I mentioned again, top of the show, it's taken a long time to pull this show together because of the very, very small population of individuals who identify, um, both as trans or non-binary and BIPOC. So has it been hard for either of you to find kind of community within the profession because there's so few folks that share these particular identity markers? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, Ari, are you okay if I go first for this yeah, one? Okay. All right. So I um, I actually was had the opportunity to speak at, at BMX with Pride VMC um, 
in uh, talking about the Gender Identity Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as part of that programming, we also had the opportunity to talk about ourselves. So it was like a 25-minute talk about, you know, what can you learn from a... So I'm a, a multiracial Asian American autistic, non-binary veterinarian, right? So uh, trying to give some insight. And part of it was I mentioned, like, I have yet to meet another veterinarian like me. And so I kind of did a call out being like, if you know another, like, QT BIPOC veterinarian, like, I normally wouldn't do this. But I'm just saying, like, please, it would be lovely to meet someone. So, like, Ari, I'm going to really, like, celebrate when you graduate. <laughs> and uh, you're going to hear from me because we're oh, going to be Of course. I was actually thinking of reaching out. 100%. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, even in the greater sense of the profession, you know, I've, I've, I've just started to meet just a couple of other people who are associated with animal health who are not necessarily veterinarians, but are part of that animal healthcare and animal wellness team. Um, and geez, yes, there are very few of us. And, um, you know, there might be likely if we look at uh, some of the uh, recent Gallup poll in 2020 that said there are more non-binary veterinarians, one in four non-binary uh, individuals in LGBTQIA community and youth. So, you know, out of youth, uh, one in four are using non-binary pronouns and uh, some are even are also like gender abolitionists and using uh, neo pronouns. So those are those are things that are really interesting happening. And, and you know, I'm I'm nearing on 40 and uh, ha- like it's not as common um, to meet people my age who are um, who are in the field and um, openly. Uh, talking about non-binary identity. Yeah, yeah. All right, did you wanna Yeah. Yeah, um, I guess for me, obviously it's been difficult, but I have actually found at least two amazing people that are in my class um, who actually helped me realize my identity. Um, so I hadn't come out as non-binary until last January. Um, And just having those two people to look up to um, because they're both very unapologetic of who they are and very kind and caring about anyone else. Um, So it's great to have that, especially in my class, um, so close to me. (laughs) Um, So I was very fortunate for that. Um, but besides them two, it has just been difficult trying to navigate vet school as well as trying to navigate, navigate my identity um, because obviously I'm still learning more about myself. Um, and sometimes it's, I only have enough <laughs> mental um, brain cells <laughs> to do vet school stuff and not like worry about like my identity. Um, so it, it has been difficult to connect with people, but also just to be able to like get those resources for myself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I imagine that bandwidth 
especially for a student, bandwidth is low. <laughs> it's a very demanding curriculum and <laughs> yes. a little time for self-exploration. Yeah, like pretty much. I, I look back on my time at that school and um, my thesis and like everything went on pause as far as like emotionally and mentally is just like get through it. And there was a, yeah, after graduation, after I finished, that was like a whole new process of figuring things out. So yeah, I, I really commend students today who are doing this balance of like mental health and well-being, uh, activism and all of these other amazing things that are happening at the same time. Uh, because I I was not able to do much. So yeah, my my class is especially very <laughs> much activistic um, with a lot of things at my school, honestly. Um, so I'm very fortunate to have that as well. Um, just be surrounded by people that actually care and like push to want to include mental health into this um, and like make. I guess, have our needs aware. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that those things are are really important when we are talking holistically about the experience in, you know, the professional program. It's a demanding, we know it's a demanding program. And so then when we start layering our personal identities, whatever they are, um, but especially if they are different, or any any other kind of way that they are seen to be non-conforming, then you know that's its own. It, it becomes its own thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know a number of um, you know diversity programs at the colleges talk about intersectionality, and certainly in the last couple of years, um, you know, within the profession post uh, the murder of George Floyd. You know, everybody is now kind of talking about these things. Um, And, you know, some of those talks are good and some of them less so um, openly hostile. Um, But, you know, I've been really intrigued in terms of looking at the programming um, around kind of understanding intersectionality. Um, But a lot of times, you know, folks aren't really thinking that way. It's kind of like, here's this piece of identity in a bubble. Here's this piece of identity in a bubble. So I'm curious, right, for both of you. Um, so for Ari, at, certainly in um, the academic program and Erica kind of out in the field when we are talking in the profession about diversity, you know, what do you think about these DEI efforts um, in relation to really small intersectional populations? So Ari, maybe we'll start with you. Yeah, um, I guess in my school, with any other school and any other institution, there's a lot of work to do. Um, And especially during the start of the pandemic um, and everything that occurred with George Floyd, um, a lot of people pushed back at the response that um, our school had. more like the lack of response or I guess not the correct way to respond. Mm -hmm. Um, I think 
that's huge um, for students to be doing that um, because I, I do think sometimes institutions don't realize the harm they can do like by saying something but also by not saying something um so when situations do come up um i guess i've been very fortunate that the people in my school during this time are very active in trying to get that seen by by administration and everyone at school um but I definitely think it's a work in progress um, with anything. Um, but the last few years, it's definitely become better. <laughs> Not gonna lie. Um, but there's still a lot of work to do. I 100% agree as far as the tremendous amount of work there's left to do. Um, and, you know, also acknowledging all of the work that has been done, you know, up until this point and then all of a sudden it was like all of a sudden there was a little bit more traction for conversations to happen and for people to like really lean in and I still find those limitations as far as addressing intersectionality I hear intersectionality uses a lot as intersectionality between veterinary medicine and other things as far as used in terms and it's kind of frustrating um uh, you know, I hear that, like being a veterinarian and being in our profession, there are a lot of challenges that come with that 100%. But um, the use of that, um, you know, sometimes is a really is really difficult to interface with. Uh, I so I have a there's a joke uh, amongst me and some of the affinity organizations that I work with. So I'm on the board of NAMV, I'm on the board of MCVMA, I work with Pride BMC, and I run around and I go to all of those meetings. Um, and some of that is because, uh, and I also do a lot of um, neurodiversity work. So like in each of these places, there are siloed conversations happening. And just by existing as my body and my opinionated self and using my voice, I have a tendency to remind people about intersectionality in the room and saying, yes, we need to be focusing on like I'm being a person being like, yes, I understand that your objective is to focus on race and ethnicity, dot, 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 but dot, dot, dot. And like we exist, you know, like QT, BIPOC, neurodivergent, you know, we exist. And um, I, in spaces of talking about queerness or talking about non-binary identity or talking about being autistic, I need, I can't like cut off my arm, right? Like I can't, I can't only talk about one aspect of my identity. I am a whole person. And so when people are like, oh, we really need you to focus on race and ethnicity. And I'm like, yes, I will do that. But also I will talk about these other things because I'm an intersectional human being. And that's the only way I can talk about it. It's such an important point. Um, and, and certainly one that I think all folks with any kind of marginalized identity have to kind of remind folks on a regular basis. Like I, I like, there may be in certain spaces, um, certain parts of our identity that step forward, but 
the rest of them are there. <laughs> like, right. It's not like you, it's not like you're like, oh, I'm going to take this off and I'm yeah. going to put it in the closet, ironically, like right. <laughs> I'm going to put it in the closet, ironically, and then go to this meeting that doesn't happen. And, you know, for me, I'm, I'm cis, I'm straight, but I even, but I'm still a woman of color. Right. And so there's still times it's like, well, are you saying that as a woman or are you saying that as a black person? I'm like, I'm saying it as a black woman. Cause yeah. I don't know how to say it any other way. Like I can't, right. You know, it's, it's, it's not like Legos. <laughs> right. Like you can't, yeah, you can't parse it apart. And also I would say like on, you know, with, uh, so like oppression, although like, you know, there is internal, there are internalized parts of my journey. Right. But like oppression also very significantly comes from external spaces. Right. So like when I'm experiencing, you know, I would say that there was a moment when, um, the murders in, in Georgia happened where I actually had a moment where I was like, Oh, like I have been experiencing racist misogyny, not just misogyny <laughs> that has been projected on me because like, you know, like I am, I don't believe in having to present with, um, with androgyny in order to make people comfortable with my non-binary identity. So like Mm -hmm. I switch in between based off of my mood on how I want to present. So most of the time people are, are projecting um, femme and like, uh, uh, like viewing me as an Asian woman Mm -hmm. and so, or a racially ambiguous woman because they don't know what I am. They just know I'm not white. So like that moment of experiencing that and, and the trauma of, of seeing what happened to that community in the aftermath, like those, that community in Georgia and the implications of that for um, Asian women everywhere. And like where I was like, why am I? And then I was like, had this moment of being like, oh, my entire life. Wait, like that, that process of racist misogyny specifically and having that redefining and I think that as as people who have marginalized identity are, are coming into the world and having more conversations and connecting with community and then recognizing like oh this stuff that has happened to me is actually directly related to these systems and now I have to process everything again <laughs> a whole different level of healing which is great <laughs> But it's a lot of work because it's never ending, kind of, to be honest. Yeah, yeah it's never ending. Go ahead, Ari. Um, I was just going to say, I recently read it. I was reading an article, um, not an article. It was a post that um, an Asian-American woman said about the rise in hate crimes, especially against Asian women, which is not talked about enough. Um, and especially not labeled as hate crimes. Mm. Um, so I definitely feel that for you, um, mm-hmm. the frustration and the realization of that because you didn't realize it because others didn't realize it. It's not shown in the media. Like it's not talked about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't name it. We don't name yeah. it. Yeah, we don't name it. That was huge for me getting connected to you 
BIPOC community. Yeah. So one of one of the most transformational experiences for me was um, finding community outside of veterinary medicine. Um, uh, when I was living in Iowa and working in fine uh, medicine, I spent a lot of my time um, working with like the Des Moines Pride Center and then got connected to this amazing community group called Iowa Queer Communities of Color Coalition. And um, full of uh, QT BIPOC individuals um, and like, you know, in the Midwest, in Iowa, which is very, very dominant culture, um, energy. (laughs) And like, it, it was so important. It was so important for me having safe space to process a lot of the things that I was experiencing, because I feel like, um, you know, individuals in the Midwest who are BIPOC, are, are experiencing a, a different kind of isolation um, and also queer community experiences different kind of isolation. So that having that specific group that was founded because of the need for intersectional safe spaces for QT BIPOC people was um, absolutely transformative. And like those people in my life are still like part of what gets me get me through a lot of stuff uh in conversations and having like validation space um in dealing with like uh cis heterosexism of our culture layered on top of like paired with the racism yeah oh yeah 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 so you know you've brought up a couple of really important things that i kind of think are really important with such a small community um, um, within other <laughs> marginalized communities, um, independently, right. Um, you know, finding that community outside of veterinary medicine, when this profession is kind of, I've been around for a long time as well, a little bit of a closed loop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are so many things I love about it, right. It's an amazing profession. Yeah. Uh, and there's also, like some shifts that are slow to change, right? Like it's not, um, you know, like, yeah, we're, we're leading towards a majority like women identified uh, profession, but is that leadership? Like, no. Right. And so I, I inhabited that in a lot of different, areas as far as like in biomedical science it's the same kind of thing right in agriculture it's the same kind of thing um and you know when we think about qt bipoc leadership that's even like i'm sure if i spent long enough thinking about it i could probably come up with some examples but we already know that it's probably not going to be in veterinary medicine yeah so yeah, yeah. Um, I have a question for you, Erica, that's not on our kind of pre <laughs> pre list here. All right. is, you know, um, as you were kind of, you know, studying and, you know, pre pre vet school on through vet school, um, you know, 
is there a different practice area that you thought you might go into, but maybe didn't in part because of concerns about, you know, what life would be like? I was totally naive and I went straight for it. I, I went right on into swine medicine being like, yeah, I know that there's racism. Like, I know there's all of this problem. Like, oh, it'll be fine. Like, I was like that gung-ho and that passionate about food security. Um, and I and I made it for four and a half years, right? And uh, the majority, so I actually did not uh, come be, because I uh, am... Uh, pansexual. So like, I didn't actually connect with a lot of my identity until uh, I had graduated. So um, having that, um, for, like I had been previously like partnered uh, and lived like uh, a cis heterosexual life for uh, plenty of time, but it was, in, so I look back once I was actually like, oh, now I understand myself. Like, at three, I told my parents, like, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy, my name is Eric. And for like two years, I went by Eric. And my parents were like, okay. And then I was like, that's like, I was like, nah, good, you can call me Eric. And they were like, okay. okay. Right. They were very supportive. And also, like, I had expressed gender, like, that's for me, gender fluidity, right? So there was, it wasn't until I thought that I could be okay being in the closet and and passing or whatever like just you know having work life separate and having my personal life be um that and it was not sustainable for me Mm -hmm. I mean there are people who can there are people who can definitely do that and be very successful um for me it was uh really hard uh, navigating space where um, working with and working alongside people that I knew, like, that I would question whether or not um, I would lose my job if it would come out, right? Not more so in the context of... Um, being like non-binary being gender fluid like some of the components like there are people who like are fine as far as if we're if we're gay or a lesbian um on bind on the binary and we have like a conventional relationship structure with a marriage like a monogamous marriage like then that's fine right but if it's anything different than that then that's not fine not fine or that was my impression and you know reserve the right to be proven wrong (laughs) let the data show right (laughs) you know one of the big takeaways here is that um you know certain areas of practice may be losing talent because of um you know these, these challenges that folks are not feeling safe to be authentic, folks are not bring, able to bring their whole selves, um, you know, leaving half of yourself or, well, it's not even like a half, like it, it is like just, right, yeah. you're, you're leaving chunks, um, but even that is hard to kind of quantify, 
Um, but also recognizing that a lot of states and juris- local jurisdictions still don't offer protections, um, legal protections for um, trans non-binary folks um, is also really concerning, right? Um, because yes, we have kind of gotten to this place where certainly, um, uh, you know, where the country is certainly much more farther along on, um, you know, uh, L, G, maybe the B, but the rest of those letters, not so sure about, right? Not just, we don't understand it. We're not there. We're not, you know, quite there. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think that that, that really speaks to, um, again, loss of talent, but also some great opportunities for folks to do some things differently. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to switch gears for um, a minute and just, uh, or a few minutes, um, and talk about some big picture issues that have been in the news and pop culture and all of that for quite some time. And I will also say to my listeners and watchers that these are the opinions of the guests and may or may not be reflective of the entire community. So, right. So there's that. Um, So there are a lot of issues that certainly have been pretty loud and visible over the last, I'd say probably definitely year, 18 months, two years. Um, And with more visibility, of course, comes some pushback. Um, So I'm really interested in um, your quick thoughts on trans women in sports. All right. right. Would you like, would you like to uh, tee us off? (laughs) So (laughs) do you have any comments? You're like, no. No, it's just the whole situation, like, makes me really really mad (laughs) um the way these folks are being treated um i feel like a lot of governments may not be going at this the right way um especially with some laws that are being passed um but that just comes to show like the lack of representation that we have especially in government and be even able to like create those laws and safe spaces for trans people when it when it comes specifically to the the aspect of sports right and competition what i find most um in interesting frustrating uh is like how selectively targeted it is um So some of these proposed bills straight up condone examining children. So like straight up try to put into legal precedent the harming Mm. of kids. And there's no like question of whether or not that's appropriate. There's no question like, there, there's ambiguity in the laws that create space for this type of, of violence against children. There are consequences as far as because of the targeting of, of um, young trans girls that um, 
trans kids are experiencing violence and bullying in schools. There are several studies that demonstrate that trans kids are actually ones who experience higher rates of assault and harassment and bullying. So when we ask, like, who actually needs protection? Like, who actually needs, um, who does this serve, right? And so there are a lot of people are like, you know, there are many, many trans activists who have written extensively on this and talk about how, um, you know, these laws are designed to address a problem that doesn't really exist. Think about the layers of privilege that involves, are involved with competitive sports that involve funding, right? So like, what is the actual problem here? Um, then when they talk about like, oh, we need to protect girls, right? Let me tell you, like, there are, there, like, does it actually? No. Like, when we think about levels of harm that women in competitive sports experience, um, you know, even, even like, what, the Summer Olympics, where they were trying to find, like, volleyball, a volleyball team for having shorts instead of, like, bikini bottoms. Like, like, it's just the irony of what they're choosing to focus all of the energy on is, to me, more telling about specifically transgen- like transphobic uh, and oppressive towards LGBTQI community, where we have, like, within our, within our profession, we have veterinarians with trans kids mm-hmm. that are having to navigate being terrified that just by affirming their kids' identities that they're going to have their kids taken away. And then they have to think about, okay, do I have to move? Right? And their their kids are experiencing violence in schools and being bullied. So like overall, I yeah, that the the sports, the sports issue is like the harbinger of something that's like much more disturbing in my opinion, which is the deliberate targeting of children and youth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think that it it is, uh, it shouldn't be as complicated as folks (laughs) make it, but I think that it's also really interesting um, because I think that, that, one of the things that I think folks don't really seem to understand is that the root um, at the at the core of homophobia and transphobia is misogyny, right? And so, um, and so here is yet another way that we can kind of control young women, right, and and, and girls, right? So let's, oh, okay. So girl, okay, cool. Right. So here are the new rules <laughs> for right, you right. and the ways that, you know, this is the way that you can move through the world, that you can move to, through the world, not the way that you get to move through the world. Right. And like with biological variability, for example, we had several um, uh, participants of the Olympics who um, are not trans, who were then told that they couldn't compete because their natural endogenous level of testosterone was higher than the limits that they had set. Yeah. And it's kind of like, where where do these limits come from? I guarantee you that it's not actually something that's reflected. Like I would put money on it, you know, reserve the right to be wrong, that those limits are very limited. Like those, yeah, 
studies are very narrow in yeah. what type of cohort or people that they took samples from. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, you know, I think that it is also interesting that where that these conversations don't apply to trans men. Um, yeah. And I'm sure that is perception of, oh, well, they're not going to be competitive. So it's not an issue. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, that goes back to what do we really think about women? Right. And, and the very most cis tra- traditional kind of, you know, irritating ways. Right. So, um, so next uh, hot air balloon topic, Dave Chappelle. Mm-hmm. So let me set it up. So let me set it up. <laughs> so last year uh, he had, um, he has a giant uh, contract with Netflix and uh, last year he um, put out a new um, uh, one hour series and there's a whole bit in the series about um, the trans community and, um, you know, how he talks about the trans community, what he says about the trans community, how he's pretty much kind of dragged the trans community. Like, I mean, it was just not, you know, it was a, it was a thing. So, um, uh, yeah. Thoughts on Dave, who also then was like, you will not demand my presence at a meeting when there was kind of this overture of, hey, let's get together and talk about it. Right. Um, like that, where he's like, he's like, I want to negotiate. Right? right. And, and have a conversation or like, you should have a conversation with me, but I don't actually want to have a conversation. Yeah. And like, right. I get to set the terms of what that conversation mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, yeah, it, I mean, it blew over only because we have other news that <laughs> slid onto the front page. Right. But, right. you know, I'm kind of curious uh, about, you know, all right you want to go first yeah i can go first um the whole situation was very hard for me especially like that time last year um and everything that went with it like everything that he said that was kind of ridiculous (laughs) um like afterwards and the fact that he wasn't really apologetic about it. Um, he never really apologized about it and just made excuses for why he thought it was okay or why he thought it should be okay for him to do that. Um, and I guess that just comes to show like the power that celebrities can have. Um, especially like with money. I feel like everything's about money. If you have money, like you can say, do what you want and you're not going to get in trouble for it. Um, so <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. So um, I spent a little bit of time. So before I had, I had watched commentary. I hadn't actually watched the special until recently. And I'll point out that in his fresh out the gate, he makes jokes about uh, child sexual abuse, about he makes anti-Semitic com- uh, commentary. He 
he targets a lot of different groups. Um, and then is also incredibly misogynistic and kind of very irreverent. Right. And, and I think at times like there are there important. So, you know, one thing that we all have to do is hold multiple truths. Right. Um, there are like valid points for discussion, especially regarding racism within LGBTQ community. Right. Incredibly relevant. Um, uh, but then there are so many things that are just factually wrong that he says, like trans identity have existed or like the beginning of trans identity being oppressed comes with colonization. Right. So, you know, that whole thing about being like, this is a new thing. Mm, no, it's not like queer QT BIPOC people have existed since always and have been oppressed since always. So the concept that, somehow you know like within his he his his he like spends a second processing the fact that there are like qt bipoc people and then continues to separate it and just be like you know uh and erase non-binary people um and in commentary and then like chooses to like uplift and speak in support of a transphobic rich white person like that's what what he chooses to do in my opinion utilizes the very same tools of supremacy of marginalized groups which is divide right and instead of working together or saying like, how can we work together? It's saying that if you are successful, I'm going to torpedo you mm. because I don't feel like what's happening for me is equal. Yeah. Where I would challenge marginalized communities to say, you're succeeding. Hell yeah. How can I join on that? How can we work together? Um, how can we talk about intersectional identity and uplift and also hold, you know, people accountable yeah. who, who are not showing up for each other. And so overall, like this playing into divisiveness, like saying racist things about other cohorts and other groups. Um, but yeah, he does punch down. He punches down like across the board. And so it's really difficult for me to have any sympathy for him at all um when he chooses to use the same language of i need you to center me and center me in this process of growth and be nice to me no matter what i do or say because i'm gonna mess up and you're like really <laughs> like yeah. have you been to a dei 101 course <laughs> Like, do you see how, like, literally the things out of your mouth are, like, the very things that are coming out of mouths of people who are white supremacists? Yeah. Like, hey, if that's what you want to do with your platform, I mean, unfortunately, you're getting paid for it. And, like, you know, so I look to the trans um, leadership at Netflix who, like, left, who spoke out, who protested, 
who said like, these are the things. And like, the thing is like, yeah, you have, um, you have disclosure, uh, put together by Laverne Cox, which like, if he like is, is just seminal, it's a seminal work. And so like the thing is that they're, yes, they exist on the same platform, but there's no statement paired with David Chappelle's work that says this is transphobic as heck and full of terrible content. And you should look at a bunch of this other stuff to counteract that because a lot of people won't, a lot of people will just watch that and then be influenced to continue to put that, content forward uh and i know a lot of qt bipoc people who really had a very difficult time after that because they had to go into their own communities yeah and within community and correct people that they love to say hey like i exist it's not like against queer people or trans people like if, if you say those statements, like you're also like that, that hurts me as a QT BIPOC person. Like and I'm not the exception. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And there, there's a lot of us. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, those, um, what folks say when they don't think anyone different is, is around. Right. And, um, and then you get to find out that. <laughs> People are saying really ugly things. So um, I do have a, there is a question from the chat. And um, so I will uh, ask this. It is a sensitive question as our, this topic is sensitive. Um, so uh, actually um, this person has posed a question to Ari, but certainly Erica, you're welcome to chime in. Um, how do you deal with dead names for enrollment at your institution or have you yet uh, changed your name. So like, is this the name you go by versus the name you like, you know, your government name? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's definitely different, um, from my government name. Um, and it's more of a recent, um, change for me, but I do have friends at school that have dealt with this and it's very frustrating. it's kind of like a constant, you just have to constantly remind them, mm-hmm. especially like they'll misspell it. They won't, they'll use your dead names on documents and lists that like everyone can see. Mm-hmm. And it's not always other people that like get the name wrong. It's like the institution. <laughs> um so it's it's very hard, um, especially for me, being new to it. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like that's one of the hardest times because you, after a while, you just get tired of correcting people and kind of decide mm-hmm. whether it's better for you to just let it go for that situation and just like have your own peace um, or like keep fighting for that. Um, I know it's even more difficult when you haven't changed your legal name um, because that has to go on a lot of documents and that's what's going to be on my degree. Um, 
but it, it definitely is very hard. Um, but I guess finding people that have gone through that, not, not even just in veterinary medicine. Um, cause I, I think a lot of trans folk go through the same exact thing. Um, and it's just hard, especially because our profession is so heterosexual and white and, um, a lot of the culture that we have, um, that I've, I've been a part of, um, is just not included in mm-hmm. almost anything. Um, so it's just hard to find that support. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of barriers involved, right? Um, so for legal name change, like, it's a big process. It's a huge process. And you know what? Getting your name changed or your last name changed for marriage is not hard. <laughs> it's easy, right? And it's very simple. Um, and it's pretty funny because I chose not to change my name when I was when I was married. Uh, and that was kind of a thing, right? Uh, um but it's this this component of why the barriers, right? Why is it so difficult? And then, um, you know, students don't really have a whole lot of extra time to fight the fight. So if an administration cares about their students, like as espoused, right? Uh, like having someone address that for an incoming class is not hard Mm. in my opinion Mm. it is something that is you know easy to do doing a check-in and making sure that that is right making sure that your staff has been appropriately trained like all of the clinicians all of the staff have done title updated title nine training right and that understands that like so the issue is like we already know what the legal environment is on a local state yeah level even though on national we have some national recognition we have some national legal protections uh so waiting it's kind of one of those things where like waiting for um us to have as a community to have legal protection on a state and national level that's like really doesn't sit well with me as far as like allyship and showing up uh because we're having these battles um, where state by state, um, people are trying to take away civil rights from LGBTQIA individuals and from women. Yeah. Right. And so for institutions to be like, well, we're just going to do the bare minimum when it would be very simple for somebody to help students navigate this space to make sure that professors are informed and have the resources that they need to do to do a good job. And, um, you know, maybe even if there are people who will help students navigate that space in their degree and their licensing before they graduate. Yeah. Yeah. That would be really powerful. That would be really, really great. 
Um, you know, there's a, um, a wonderful uh, sociologist, um, very well known, uh, Tracy McMillan Cottom. Um, and uh, she just, she actually just released these little note cards that you can buy, but um, they say the institution cannot love you. Right. And, and it's so powerful. Like the individuals in the institution at the individual level, they can, they can be supportive. They can love you. They can, you know, be advocates. They can be allies, but the institution cannot love you. And I thought it was just such a powerful statement that I struggle with, (laughs) right. Working with institutions um, and trying to kind of create some of these um, spaces uh, and, and trying to get um, institutions, if not closer to love, but (laughs) at least paying attention. Right. So I have um, one question because we're almost out of time, but I have a question for both of you. And that is um, what kind of change um, would you like to see in the veterinary profession? You go first, sorry. Or wait, maybe wait, maybe I should go first because I'm all like you go first and I'm gonna you know, let have the last annoying and like like a, a jaded, a jaded old veterinarian. <laughs> oh, um no, just kidding. Um I I want to see more questions about like how do i sorry hang on if i have someone tell me one more time that all i have to do is focus on the medicine and be a good doctor and like you know like be nice i'm a lose i'm going to lose something right like i'm i'm going to uh you know i i have had to very calmly say um I would like to, for you to recognize that although that might be the case for you, that is not the case for me, Mm. right? And I think that until that idea is the norm, that like, who does medicine? People do medicine, right? So to no longer hear this constant, like, constant like it's about the medicine it's about the medicine it's about the medicine just you get it no no people people teams human beings are practicing veterinary medicine people are whole people that come in through the front doors of the clinic with a whole lived experience whole things that they have experienced throughout the day they work in the clinic and they go home and they also experience things we are whole people. And that is the biggest thing that I want to get through to people because I want to stop having to ca- have this conversation about equity in the workplace being more than DEI training and that it's about accessibility, that it's about changing language and challenging ourselves and also so we can better serve our, um, our clients. And our communities. But yeah, so that's yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think it's, it's you know it is a real uh, statement of privilege to say just focus on the medicine. You, if you're a part of the dominant culture, that's all you got to worry about, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, um, whatever that dominant culture is, and what shape it takes, right? And so, um, so Ari, last word from you, my dear. Um. 
I guess some things that I've seen, like with my time in veterinary medicine at my school, um, they have started to like make those trainings for professors and people that work in the hospital. But there's been some lashback on that, like everything else. Um, but I feel like that's the bare minimum that we can start doing. But besides that, I I feel like we should have at least one person within the institution that can fight for people, <laughs> BIPOC and everything. Um, because it gets tiring when you're the student trying to like right. fight for what you need when you shouldn't have to ask for that. Mm. Right to be treated the same way as everyone else. Thank you. Um, so I guess me coming on this show, I <laughs> really wanted to like show other people that they're not alone. And I feel like that's really hard, especially in our profession. Um, yeah. <laughs> Overall, I think it's going to be very slow for things to change, especially in this profession. But I think having people that can continue to fight for that, um, especially for those that don't have the energy to speak up for themselves. Um, because majority of the time we don't have the energy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you bring up um, the thing about just practicing medicine. And for us, we can't just do that. Like, you're right. It's about privilege. Like, maybe other people don't have to think about providing for their families or worry about, like, people misgendering them or being targeted, um, not feeling safe. Like, they, they don't have to think about any of that. So how can they say that we should just focus on the medicine? We have so many other things that we have to worry about as well. Yeah. Um, but, but we, and we can also practice the medicine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Wow. Yes. Imagine if, if you didn't have to worry about those things and you just got to practice yeah. medicine. Mm. Yeah, there are places that are like with accessibility and safe spaces and let me tell you i love working for those clinics they definitely exist they exist all right and that is a very positive thing and yeah. i think it's a place for us to wrap this show uh to my guests ari and erica thank you um, for joining me for this conversation. Thank you for um, willing to be brave and visible and um, for trusting me <laughs> to, to create that space. I, I'm really um, honored and um, it means a lot. Uh, so thank you 
to both of you. Um, this has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app and be sure to like and follow our Facebook page, which is AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. Uh, we will be back soon with a new show. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Thank you.